Hey, I'm Mike Barron, and you're on Signal of Doom. Oh, you know, for me, the action is the juice. I'm in. Hello and welcome to Signal of Doom. Well, it's our great honor today to have Mike Barron on the show. Mike, how are you going? Good. That's good. And Mike, I'm looking at you right now when we're doing this interview and you've got blue hair. Um, which is a new look for you, Mike, can I say? <laughs> and this is in relation to your... <laughs> You're still going. I love it. Now, this is in relation to Thin Blue Line, and I believe it was it was like a, a challenge you put out to yourself uh, in regards to the funding? Well, it's a challenge to the funders. I said yeah. if we reached uh, our first stretch goal, which was 20 grand, I'd dye my hair blue. At 30, green. 40, wow. mohawk. 50, <laughs> shaved skull. Wow. Okay, and where, where are you right now, like in terms of how, how the book's going in terms of the funding? You, you're over 20, yeah? Yes, or I, I wouldn't be sitting here with yeah. blue hair. Yeah, wow, I'm very impressed. Like, So, Mike, um, let's talk for a moment about Thin Blue Line. Um, now, I've got the description here. Uh, it's, it's a great description. Um, what, where is it? Raging mobs burn down the city as two cops fight for their community, dot, 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 and for their very survival. So do you want to take uh, readers just through exactly what's happening in Thin Blue Line and um, and then also you can direct them to the to the Indiegogo? Well, anybody who was watching television in the summer of 2020 knows exactly what's going on in Thin Blue Line. As mobs rampaged through blue cities, burning buildings, destroying small businesses, thousands of small businesses, over $2 billion worth of damage, dozens of people murdered. Uh, wow. Crazy. And this was, and in every case, there was a, a proud member of the Lickspittle, which is what I call modern journalism, standing out front of these burning cities, explaining that these were mostly peaceful protests. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, the politicians started calling for defunding the police. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, at that moment, I realized, well, this this is the stuff of high drama. Uh, there's a reason that police, legal, and medical shows have dominated popular entertainment for over half a century. It's because those professions deal with life and death, and that's the uh, the stuff of drama. Mm. Uh, so I decided to write about it. Now, uh, 10 or 15 years ago, my take would not have been controversial. Uh, but today, in today's woke climate, uh, it is highly controversial and even dangerous mm. to claim that we need the police. However... I know a number of police officers. I've met them uh, uh, working out and, and uh, in the course of having to, to need a police officer. Mm. And uh, every cop I know is a civic-minded individual who joined the force to be a, a positive force in their community. Uh, and this points to the second rule of writing, which is show, don't tell. Mm. In other words, instead of broadcasting all over social media what virtuous people they were, they actually do things to make a difference. Mm. Uh, and I have a lot of respect for them. And this doesn't deny they're bad cops. or there's uh, Everybody knows they're bad cops, but they're in the minority. Uh, and most of the police are getting a raw deal. And we see now 
the fruits of these insane policies uh, as uh, homicides are up over 100%. Right. And this is verifiable in Minneapolis, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, and Chicago. These are all blue cities that voted to defund the police. Uh, they can't keep a viable force uh, on the payroll because cops are taking early retirement. They're reluctant to answer calls because they know they're going to be vilified. Uh, and you add to that the, uh, uh, the COVID mandate that they have to be vaccinated or they're going to lose their jobs. And it's just a recipe for disaster. Uh, my story takes place over 24 hours as two police officers are assigned to guard the mayor mm. of a uh, middle-sized Midwestern city just as the riots break out. And while they are protecting the mayor as he's trying to give a speech, the riots reach them and they have to go on the run. Uh, rioters invade and destroy City Hall. Wow. And the story follows them through the night in their desperate, desperate attempt not only to save the mayor, but to survive. And I have to stress, there's nothing didactic or preachy about this story. It's pure drama from the first page to the last. Sounds exciting, there's not, a, there's not a wasted panel or a wasted word. People are going to read this book and say, holy shit, yeah. why can't most comics be this good? Yeah, Matt, wow. I mean, you've got me at hello, I think. I mean, obviously, I agree with your comments. I mean, who could forget the fake city of Chaz? Do you remember that, uh, Mike? Oh, the, yeah. And I yeah, and I called it that, you know. <laughs> um, that is, it, it sounds, I mean, I've already backed it, uh, and I do want to say to Signal Thank listeners, no, no worries, Mike, um, I want to say to Signal listeners, um, get on this, because this is, Mike tells a fantastic story. Every time we have Mike on the show, I do a bit of, like, reading, you know, of previous things to, to have a feel for the, for the work. And, Mike, you're one of these guys, I, I don't think I've ever read a bad comic from you, like, it's always exciting. Um, I think fans of your Punisher run and fans of many of your runs, I mean, would would would, would run to this. And um, is this a graphic novel, Mike? So it's 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 like an enclosed uh, issue. Yes, it's a complete story. Fantastic. It's fifty fifty six pages long. Wow. My penciler is a full time police officer. His name is Joe Arnold. I've known him for many years sure. since before he joined the police. Right. Uh, Joe is also a skilled jujitsu practitioner, and uh, there are some scenes of hand-to-hand -hand combat in the book that will leave you breathless, but not only breathless, delighted with the way that we portray it. Mm. Uh, my thing has always been to show martial arts in the comics in a visual, dynamic, and exciting manner, the way they actually work in real life. And by that, I mean... We don't show one panel with a fist or a foot waving around and people flying off panel. Yeah. We show the technique develop over a series of panels so you can understand exactly what's going on. It's like the good kung fu movies, the ones that are filmed with a straight-on camera, no tricks, and one take. And you can see that these guys are actually doing it live in front of the camera without tricks, without cutaways. Yeah. Uh, and without stunt doubles or wires. Uh, yeah, and I'm yeah. thinking like the Ip Man movies or Bruce Lee movies. Yeah. Uh, or uh, a lot of Jet Li's movies. Uh, oh, yeah. But it's not a martial arts uh, story, but there are martial arts scenes. Uh, and I think that uh, those who, who are interested in the martial arts or practice them are going to be delighted. Yeah, and I mean, that sounds awesome. Um, and it, it's very fitting that you've got a, a, a cop actually drawing the book, Mike. That's excellent. Um, yeah, we're very proud. Are you getting a bit of um, support from, I would imagine, like uh, local law enforcement over there, perhaps? Um, 
you know, yes, we are. Yeah, I would would have thought yes. so. Yeah, that's that's great. So it really feels like you've hit on kind of the zeitgeist because just from my perspective, obviously I'm in Australia, so a long way from the states, but that defund the police thing was just nuts. And, and, and like, people saying that, I was thinking, do you really think you don't need the police? Do you really think society will function without that, you know, um, you know, level of law enforcement? And funnily enough, I make fun of it on the show, in the fake city of Chaz, they had, because they were all about, like, no police, in the, in the fake city of Chaz, they had people walk around with guns policing the people inside the, the fake city. So they had their own police. Do they not realise, like, how nuts they are? Um, well, uh, yeah. you're either for the rule of law or you're not. Mm. Obviously, civilization cannot exist without the rule of law and the yeah. success of Western civilization uh, and the United States in particular has inspired the worst in uh, human sentiment. And by that, I mean envy, resentment, greed and malice. Mm. And these are the people who have now taken over our country they are not motivated by uh, noble ideals. They really aren't interested in lifting everybody up or helping others. Yeah. They're interested in lining their pockets at the public expense, yeah. enjoying perks that normal people don't enjoy, such as not having to wait in line at the airport and their own personal security details, and in punishing their enemies. Uh, the Founding Fathers never envisioned career politicians, and for the most part, they've been a disaster. Yeah, and it's very divisive these days. Would you say that there's, uh, I think, you know, from my perspective, there seems to be a bit of a backlash against the, this defund the police BLM and stuff. It seems to be kind of like uh, petering out a little bit, that thing, and maybe there's a bit more of a, you know, what I think is the majority of people now coming back and saying, well, let's not get too crazy here. We, we need these things. Well, uh, I think people are voting with their feet. Uh, you know that every Walgreens, which is the most popular drugstore in America, has left San Francisco. That was 130 stores. They simply closed down and pulled out and said, we can't exist in this climate mm. with people coming in here with impunity, cleaning out our shelves and running out. Yeah. Uh, and the same, you may have seen the stories recently about 80 uh, armed men in masks and carrying crowbars uh, breaking into a Louis Vuitton store in San Francisco and walking off with hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of merchandise. And there's no point in calling the police uh, because the police don't have the manpower to follow up. And the district attorney in San Francisco won't prosecute any theft less than $900. In fact, he won't prosecute any theft whatsoever. Uh, now, the people of San Francisco voted for him, so they're getting what they deserve. But not everybody voted for him. Mm. And not everybody deserves to live in, uh, in chaos and anarchy, which is what they've created in these blue cities. And to, again, I will name the cities. Mm. Minneapolis, Chicago, Spokane. Portland, and San Francisco. And those are just a couple because it's happening all over. It's not happening in red cities. Yeah, It's right. happening exclusively in blue cities. Yeah, and um, for listeners who aren't familiar, blue and red cities, am I right in saying a blue city is traditionally kind of Democrat in the, in the States? And That's red right, is and the Democrats chose these colors. Uh, and even though blue rightfully should belong to the conservatives and red should belong to the communists, <laughs> Good point. they named themselves the blue and labeled everybody else 
the red. Anybody who really? dares resist them, they're the red. Yeah, the and, other. And wasn't there recently, um, uh, a week or two ago, there were some elections in the states which saw a bit sort of like a bit of a conservative came comeback kind of thing. I think. I was, oh, it was an earthquake. Yeah. Uh, Virginia elected a Republican governor for the first time in decades. Uh, and Maryland uh, elected new leader of the Senate, who was a conservative, who was a truck driver. Really? Who spent $135 on his campaign. How oh, they tried wow. to rob him of his victory when all of a sudden, in the middle of the night mm. of the election, 20,000 mystery ballots suddenly showed up in the incumbent's box. Yeah. Uh, but after close examination, he backed down. And uh, so this truck driver has been seated as the news president of the Senate in Maryland. Wow. Uh, and, of course, the the uh, the verdict in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial mm. in Kenosha, where they found him uh, not guilty on all charges, uh, shows that common sense is, is beginning to uh, regain its footing in the United States. And, of course, the people who are in power now mm. uh, uh, are running scared, but not scared enough to change their policies. I don't want this to be too much about politics. That's all right, man. Uh, the story is necessarily a bit political, but primarily it's a good drama. Yes, and I don't want, um, you know, and, and, and yeah, sorry, that was just my own interest coming in there because uh, I'm a bit of a political news hound. But um, I would totally say that this story sounds fantastic. Um, and I'll tell you something else that I was thinking, Mike, in terms of potential stories, and I was talking to Chuck Dixon about this. Um, you know, recently, uh, U.S., pulled out of Afghanistan and and what a tragedy that was and how sickening to me that was and I was saying to Chuck what about a comic similar to what Marvel did it with the Nam about Afghanistan about someone shipping over there and the you know the the whole cycle over the like 20 years and sort of an ongoing comic about that about about the US going across there I mean Australia was involved as well and I just feel that that is ripe for um, someone with a bit more military knowledge than someone like me. Um, to, w would you see a comic like that being something that people would actually pick up and buy? I think so. I think it would be very effective. Mm. Yeah, it's just it was just a, just I just think sometimes with these things that are in the news, good writers can really pluck pieces of the news out and create really entertaining drama. And it really resonates in, in, inside the culture of the time, the zeitgeist of the time. Um, so, I, you know, this is something I'm thinking about. Now, uh, look, so Thin Blue Line, it's on Indiegogo. Um, I'll put the link up again. Um, I've been sharing the link to Signal Doom listeners, but I'll put the link up again when we do this interview. Um, and, yeah, uh, basically, if you want to see, what, what, what did you say? What's the next colour of hair, Mike? Is it green? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go green. Yeah, like the Joker. <laughs> you could do a picture with you with green hair and insert the Joker's face, like kind of paste it, like the, the smile of the Joker. That would actually be very entertaining. Um, now, look, obviously, when we have you on, Mike, uh, I've got a few other questions, if we could just talk a little bit. Um, I was thinking a lot about um, back in your Punisher days, Punisher 14 was a substitute teacher story um, where Frank came in. Um, this is for, for the kids who haven't read the classic uh, Mike Barron Punisher. Please do so. It's all now, now out in Epic Collections. Um, Frank came in as a substitute teacher, and I remember Micro Chip said to him, Frank, a high school student, a chemistry teacher, what kind of soldiers is that? And Punisher replied, the kind who are willing to make a stand. Um, now, that one resonates with me. So, I mean, it's honestly one of the reasons I'm reading comics, Mike. 
when you came up with that story, was it were you just lying in bed one night and you thought, Frank, going into a high school and you could have the whole, you know, crime was a big factor. You had Libyans, I believe, were doing some bombing down in the sewers. Uh, do you remember much about that story? No. <laughs> I do remember the story, of course. Uh, and in those days, uh, I was ripping the stories from the headlines. Yeah. As a lot of writers do, and there's nothing new about that. Uh, Marvel had been doing it for decades before I came along. Sure. Uh, it's just that uh, uh, my goal, my number one rule is to entertain, and I never lose sight of that fact. Number two is show, don't tell. Yeah. Uh, and number three is be original. Uh, but uh, when you're writing as a, a character like The Punisher, which I approached as a straight crime comic, yep. uh, no superheroes, no robots, no sci-fi, uh, naturally I would look at the real world and say, well, what would The Punisher do? Where would The Punisher go? Mm. Uh, and there was no lack of story ideas from drug dealing to Jim Jones to crooked bankers. Yeah. It was all there. It was just all I had to do was to choose the theme and put the Punisher in those situations and then work it out. Yeah. And you, like, whenever I look back at yours, you had some great artists as well. Uh, I'm not trying to pronounce his name. Will Potasio? Is that, is that Will's, pronounced? yeah. Yeah, I, I, I met Will at a, um, he came out to a convention here in Australia and I actually got that issue signed by him. Uh, he was a lov- lovely guy, um, yeah, actually. He's a great guy. Yeah, really nice guy. Um, now, I also wanted to mention uh, Punisher 37, uh, the controversy issue. I-, I saw you in this one. You skirted the line uh, with Punisher protecting kind of Rush Limbaugh-style conservative radio shock jock. Um, <laughs> did this one cre- – because, I mean, your Punisher to me, Frank Castle, was essentially apolitical to me. He was above the politics of the day. Um, how did you view that storyline? Was it kind of more of a free speech kind of thing you thought angle you were going with? Well, it was to a certain degree. And, and obviously that character was modeled on Rush. And in fact, Rush mentioned the comic on his show. Right. Uh, but uh, I think that I made the character a little more ambivalent than Rush, although I supported Rush wholeheartedly. The character I created was a bit more of a demagogue. Right. So there was a gray area there, uh, whether he was in it to do good or in it for himself. And of course, uh, you can do good and serve yourself, too, as many people do. Uh, But uh, the temptations of fame and fortune will sometimes uh, bend you. They're very tempting. They're very tempting. Yeah. And I say, look, I, I say this all the time in your Punisher it's a crime story. There's always a little bit of humour. Like, your Frank had a little touch of humour in him, I always felt. And I, he, he has the line, I'm only helping because I'm for free speech, and I hate those who would si- silence it. The proper response to speech you find offensive is more free speech. That's what Punisher says in that one. And I was like, that must have been a, must have been a bit of fun. And did readers react at the time? Did you get much pushback from readers, or were they loving it? Oh, I think they loved it. You know, you read that to me now, and it sounds a little preachy to me. Ah. Uh, it sounds a little bit like a speech, and I wouldn't do that today, but I'm happy I did it then. Yeah. And I believe in that. And that's not an original sentiment. Uh, uh, some great men have said the proper response to speech you don't like is more free speech. And it wasn't me that came up with that idea. I'd Google it if I had time. But sure, no. but I was just uh, repeating what, what smarter men than I have said. Oh, well, I do that all the time. Don't worry, Mike. That's uh, that's that's something we do all the time. Now, I did want to mention um, the origin of Microchip, which is a character you created. 
you, you actually did, I got my hands on it recently, a two-parter with Carl Potts that actually did the full origin of Microchip, and you get to see how the two of them came together, uh, Frank and Microchip, and you linked it all back up to Junior at the end of the end of the um, end of the episode, and it was literally who could forget Junior sadly dies quite early on in the run, um, Microchip's kid, and um, I wanted to say what was it like working with Carl Potts as your editor, and obviously he was a very accomplished writer himself. Uh, did you break story a lot with Carl during your run? You know, Carl was a real sweetheart, and he's an example of the type of editor that has been missing mm. in comics for a decade. And by that, I meant Carl said, I want these stories to make sense. I want them to go from A to B without any detours that, that leave the reader wondering. Mm. And I want them to be entertaining. Uh, and Carl was a writer himself, so mm. he knew what he was speaking about. And I had the pleasure of working with Carl uh, and Archie Goodwin. Mm and Denny O'Neill, and, and they were great editors, and they knew how to make a comic, and they understood rule number one, which is that the comic must entertain. Mm. Oh, 100%. I mean, that's like, if you think about your audience, Mike, like at least back then, I mean, it was, it was it, a lot of the audience was in that sort of 12 to 19 range. You know, it was a lot of teenage yeah. kids. Uh, they're not looking for deep meanings or deep politics. They're looking for entertainment. They're looking for, you know, like, frankly, Punisher, a bit of crime. They want to see Punisher blowing away drug lords and stuff and, you That's know, right. criminals and all that kind of stuff. I, I'm speaking, I was one of them, you know. Um, now, those kind of guys, you mentioned a Carl Potts, a Denny O'Neill and Archie Goodwin, legends. Um, did they uh, get deeply into your stories? Did you have to change a lot of stuff or was it more like, yeah, Mike, you've, you've got a good thing here? I, can, I can't remember any editorial interference whatsoever. Yeah. For many of those gentlemen. Yeah. They let me write whatever I wanted. But I think one of the reasons was that that I understood the rules of storytelling as well. Oh, yeah. And as I mentioned, rule number one is to entertain. Uh, and you mentioned humor. Uh, and I believe that humor is a part of any story. Even the grimmest story has flashes of humor. Shakespeare understood that. Uh, and even Schindler's List has a few jokes. Yeah. And if you can get jokes in Schindler's List... It just goes to show you, I mean, it's one of the most tragic things of all time. Um, now, just wrapping up the, the Punisher stuff here, the boxing storyline in Philadelphia, it's an old favourite, and I noticed you dedicated that to Denny O'Neill, the actual issue. Was there a story behind that? Was he a fight fan, Denny? Denny was a fight fan. Uh, you know, I wish I had asked him this when I had the opportunity because we met many times, uh, but he tried to bring martial arts into his comics too. Uh, and I, I wonder if he ever trained. I kind of suspect that he did. And, and I may go back and take a look at that uh, because I think he was responsible for the Richard Dragon Kung Fu comic. He was. Yeah, he was. And he had Lady Shiva as well, um, another, right. sort of, another sort of martial arts character that I'm just naming off the top of my head. Yeah, I mean, and, such a, such and when a he was working with Neil Adams mm. on the Batman, mm. uh, the martial arts were were beautifully portrayed. I mean, Neil was really into it. Neil didn't just show a fist mm. waving around and people flying off panel. Uh, he would show the technique unfold. Did you ever work with Neil Adams on any of your comics? No, I wish I had. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's still time. You both are still alive. You could you could do something. I know. Well, we've <laughs> talked about it. I've corresponded with Neil a couple of times, and, and every time we're in the same place, I go by and say hello. Yeah. Why not? I mean, God's such a talent, you know? 
like uh, I would say one of those guys that I mean sort of revolutionized the comic book art he sort of pushed it absolutely forward. yeah pushed it forward in a big way um now I, I read an interview once Mike where you said something along the lines of like in the late 80s that you were hot for five minutes was kind of how you felt about it and you were a bit ambivalent did the success and the ride of the Punisher title and all the other stuff you're doing kind of burn you out a bit at the time like did you go on the ride and then you were like wow I'm actually burnt out here I'm doing too much well, I was never burnt out, but I fell out of the industry for about 10 years, a very difficult period in my life. Right, yeah. It was during that period that I moved to Colorado, uh, and uh, I stopped writing largely. I still dabbled in it, and, yeah. and uh, I had set out to write novels, and I had been trying to write novels for 30 years, and it took me 30 years to learn how to write a novel because I'm a slow learner. Yeah. But then one day I was working on a book, and... And I realized that I that I had it, that I understood the novel structure. I understood what constituted story. And most importantly, I understood what happens next. Yes. Because that's the essential question in all fiction. What happens next? Yep. And the reader has to care before he turns the page. And I had learned how to make the reader care. So now I divide my time equally between novels and comics uh, but, of course, my comics are all outside the system now. We mm. submitted Thin Blue Line to every major publisher. Not only was it turned down, we got some vile responses. Really? Oh, yeah. That's, cr that's crazy. Like, I I, I'm, so, I'm sorry. A story of two cops in a riot-torn city shouldn't be that controversial, like, frankly. You know, like... Oh, yeah. We got, we got cursing and, and really? uh, the big F you and... Wow. Even even from places like a Dark Horse and IDW, those kind of places, you know. I don't think we uh, approached uh, Dark Horse as to IDW. You would have to ask Chris Brawley, who did the submissions and runs sure. my shows. Sure, uh, sure. And uh, he has uh, made a number of those responses public with right. the, the the names of the respondents redacted. Right. Uh, I have I have nothing bad to say about IDW, but it's no, quite no. possible he submitted to them. Yeah, no worries, man. I, I'm not here to, you know, cause drama. Um, yeah, no, I did want to talk about your books. So it's so interesting to me because your books, when I read them, I love reading your books. I'm a huge fan of the Biker series, the Josh Pratt books. Um, but a lot of your books, you have a you have a concept, like a high concept. Do you start with the concept first? Like, for example, your book that I read it was about the demonic rock band. Um, oh, yeah, Banshees. That, yeah, Banshees was a hell of a lot of fun. Now, did you come up with that? Like, when you go to write that book you like i'm going to write about a demonic rock band that comes back from the dead is that how you started it or what well in a way i mean all these stories start with me absorbing information from the world around me and i was looking at all these uh satanic rock bands or yes. not you know they yeah. adopt a bad boy image because it's rock and roll and yeah. rock and roll is is uh scrofulous and messy and ragged and loud and profane that's rock and roll. It's only natural on the spectrum. You're going to have rock bands that say we're so bad, yeah. we're so evil that, that we consort with with the the other world, the the nether world, with Satan himself, uh, and that's what gave me the idea. Yeah, I, I said, well, well, what if they did? What if they really did? Yeah, and it's it's a great read, and I honestly recommend. I've read quite a number of your novels, and they are fascinating, and it. I mean, it seems to me like some people can just do both. Like, uh, I think of yourself, or Chuck Dixon, you know. There's there's people who can, 
obviously your career started in comics, but when I read your novels, I, I'm hooked. And I was thinking with the with um the the two novels that um your fans have reached out and recommended to me. One's called Whack Job, and one's called Helmet Head. Helmet Head has a crazy cover, and I've actually purchased it. Um, can you take us through? Do you remember the five cent or ten cent pitch on those two? Well, Helmet Head's the easiest pitch of all. Mm. Nazi biker zombies. <laughs> Great pitch, Mike. I mean, yeah, and, and you know, yeah. you can't do a three word pitch for most of these novels, but you can for that one. <laughs> Nazi biker zombies. Wow, that, that that is awesome, and and I mean, I know that 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 is the one that um your 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 readers have have recommended to me. And what what about Whack Job? Um, do you remember that one? Whack Job is about spontaneous human combustion. Really? And yeah, and the idea for that is is so whack. <laughs> which is why I call it that, 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 that uh, prominent figures, mostly politicians, uh, burst into flames spontaneously at the oddest times, like addressing people and on television, and you see them burn up and there's nothing left but carbon, and it causes a crisis and, and the government creates a task force. Uh, but the reason for it will blow your mind. I mean, everybody gets to that page, and when they find out the actual reason these people are bursting into flame, it's like, oh, my God, I did not see that coming. And how did these novels do for you? I'm going to write it myself, and um, they're all on Amazon. Like, you get a fair bit of feedback on this kind of stuff? Um, are people yes, enjoying but, them? you know, both those novels are over 10 years old, right. uh, and uh, one of the bright spots in my life is I think I'm getting better as a writer. Yeah. Uh, and each time I sit down to write, I think the books are getting better. And I think you can see that in the progression of biker books, yeah. although I love biker number one. But but each subsequent book is is uh, is a better entertainment, at least to me. It's more satisfying. It goes together together more smoothly. Yeah. Uh, and right now I'm working on three novels. One is a, a military science fiction novel yeah. with a friend of mine who's a Green Beret and served two tours of duty in Afghanistan. Wow. Uh, the second one is the second Nexus novel, which is almost through. If I could just get a few days free, I could finish it. And the third one is the new biker novel, right. which is, uh, is, is uh, I'm very proud of this one. Uh, I can't, you know, I, I shouldn't tell you what it's about, uh, but I will. Yeah, come on, Mike. <laughs> Josh, Josh is hired to locate a 700-pound tiger that goes missing from its wild animal sanctuary. Right. Um, and, and, yeah, this sounds good. Now, I did want to mention, with these Josh Pratt books, you've obviously got a main character established that long-time readers know. When you're coming up with concepts uh, for this and then putting them to the story, like, are you taking them out of the paper? Are you, is, it, is it always a challenge to sort of write the, ne the new one and you can have readers just coming into the new one? So when you're writing about the 700-pound tiger, are you anticipating that some of the readers will, this will be their first book? in the Josh Pratt series, or are you... Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I want people to, to dive in in any book yeah, uh, and become fascinated with the story. Uh, and the ideas for these books come from all over the place. Uh, when I, you know, I'll get an inspiration or something will occur to me and, and I'll say, yeah, that's the stuff of a novel. In this case, it's no secret. I got it from watching Tiger King. Yes, right. Which is a documentary on Netflix about this lunatic who had a wild animal sanctuary where he was breeding tigers and breeding them with lions and interbreeding solely to get cubs because that's where the money is because people will pay big money to come in and play with the cubs. Mm. Uh, but the cubs only last like three or four months and then they become too ferocious to 
yeah. to pet. And yeah. so you have to keep breeding them to keep the money coming in. Joe Exotic, wasn't it? That was his name, I believe. Yeah, that was his name. Now there's a sequel out. I haven't watched it yet, but uh, I've done a lot of research on this. You have to. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the more research you do, the better the story gets, because the research will teach you things you never knew. Yeah. Like uh, a grown tiger needs uh, 80 to 100 pounds of meat a day. Jesus, really? That gets expensive, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, now, in my, I, I do love my research, Mike, for my interviews. I'm a bit of a research hand. Now, in my research, I stumbled across this Kolchak the Night Stalker, um, a, a famous TV show from, I want to say, the 70s. Now, I believe, Mike, that you did, I think, a, a short story collection. Like, your, did you do a short story in the 90s at some point um, for Kolchak through Moonstone Press? Do you, now, is it, this is news to me because I love Kolchak. Is that is that right? You, you know, Dave, if I did, uh, I must have done it in my sleep. Uh, I know that my my friend Ron Fortier has contributed to those books. Uh, okay. Ron lives here in town. He's a great writer, too. Yeah. Uh, I don't recall, but I if I go through my files, yes, uh, I suppose I could ask the publisher Yeah. Uh, and, and, and say, Joe, did I write a Kolchak story? I may have. Well, you're, you know, cr you're credited on Amazon. Um, now, from it's called Night Stalker Chronicles, I think, and... For those who don't know, Kolchak the Night Stalker was kind of a forerunner of the X-Files. The X-Files creator often credits it um, yeah. as, as being a big influence on the X-Files, which I think is what gave it a new lease of life on, like, you know, cable and on TV and stuff, on um, DVDs and all that kind of stuff. Um, so that's interesting. Now, um, I wanted to get... The question I had, uh, and this comes from my co-host, Rich, now... I'm all over your Badger and your Punisher and, and your creator-owned stuff, but he's a big, well, Nexus is creator-owned. Um, and he wanted to know, could you, tell, could you tell the story, if you remember, of how you and Steve Rude came up with Nexus? Like, was it back in the early 80s, Mike, or when was this? Oh, it was. Yes, it was. Uh, uh, I was working at an insurance company when I got a phone call from... Uh, a newspaper editor I knew who said, hey, there's some guy down here trying to sell us his art and he draws just like you. And, and of course, this guy couldn't couldn't tell his ass from his elbow when it comes to art. I've been trying to draw for years and I made a bunch of bad sketches. Uh, so I met Steve Rude and he showed me his portfolio and we agreed to team up. Right. Uh, we were in the right place at the right time because Capital City Distribution, at the time the second largest comic distributor in the world, wanted to publish their own books. So uh, I went home and I brainstormed the first 12 pages of Nexus, and then I drew them all out by hand. Right. And uh, I gave them to the dude, and he penciled and inked and lettered it. And we showed it to the boys, and they said, yeah, now give us 20 more pages. And that's how my career in comics started. Now, as for the concept, I asked myself what would make – I wanted to do a superhero. Right. Uh, and I, what would be dramatic? Well, it would be dramatic if every time he showed up, somebody died. Uh, so I made him a reluctant executioner of mass murderers because I wanted him to be sympathetic. I wanted him to be a killer, but I wanted him to be sympathetic because mm. many of our heroes, uh, both here and in Australia, are killers. Sure. But that doesn't mean they're bad people. Huh. And then uh, it just began to snowball from there, and, and we kept going on and on. And, and uh, every time I sat down to write a new story, uh, I would think, what happens next? 
uh, especially because I was writing them by drawing each page out by hand. When you draw the page and you put in the panel and you fill that panel in, you're forced to think, what happens next? What makes sense? What will entice the reader to proceed? And that's how I wrote, kind of like an inchworm, feeling himself along all these pages, panel by panel, asking myself, what happens next with each panel? Yeah. And so the world began to balloon. It's called world building. And before you knew it, we had Ilam and we had all these refugees and we had all these other worlds. Uh, and it just got bigger and bigger. And uh, so now we have this huge universe with which to play. It's great. Like, and I mean, that's, I mean, what a, what a thing to lean back on to know that you've got that there. And, and obviously all those um, stories are in print. So that's fantastic. I mean, and I've, I've got to say, I mean, really, honestly, I need to have a look at this Nexus because I, nearly everyone I have on the, whenever I have you on the show mentions it to me. So, so many of your fans come in via that route. I came in via the Punisher route and Badger and all this kind of thing. But to know that you have this whole cosmic sort of like um, universe is, is cool. Now, um, I have a final question. This comes from friend of the show, Michael Kellershim. And, Mike, I know these days you are, you know, you're, you're all about your creator and you're doing fantastic stuff on Thin Blue Line. It's just a hypothetical. He says, Mike... This Christmas, if you receive ownership of Marvel Comics as a gift, what change? <laughs> yeah, so that's a big gift, Mike. Uh, what changes would you make, and which titles would you personally write, and who would do the art? So, do you have do you have an answer for that, Mike? If you were in charge, well, uh, I would hire Chuck Dixon to write, uh, and I would hire Aaron Lopresti and Billy Tucci. Uh, and even Ethan Van Skyver uh, and Art Thiebert to draw. Uh, and uh, I know of a lot of writers who could do the job. The only title that I think, well, there are two titles I've always been interested in, uh -huh. Master of Kung Fu, so that I could show real martial arts, and Captain America, wow. which is being egregiously mishandled now. Yeah. And toward that end, I'm writing a book called Private America, Okay. which is everything Captain America should be but isn't. That's interesting. Um, in terms of Cap, uh, I mean, they had that ridiculous storyline where Cap was like a Hydra. Um, is that what you're referring to? I, I, I've sort of dropped off it since Brubaker finished. I have sort of haven't, haven't read much Cap since then. Um, do you believe it? Surely you believe in the old-fashioned Cap like uh, the red, white, and blue? You know? Well, I believe in a, uh, a patriotic cap who works in the interests of the American people and also for truth, justice, and the American way. Yeah. Uh, and all I can say is, is uh, you know, I'll just say this. It starts on the, the southern border. Right. Okay, cool. Yeah. that's where yeah. he would be. I'd, I'd, I'd buy that in a heartbeat. Not a Punisher title for you, Mike? I would have thought you and Chuck could split up Punisher. One do Punisher War Journal, one do Punisher. Well, I can only write so much. That's true. I know. I'm, I'm being greedy now. I want to get you both involved. Um, look, Mike, thank you so much uh, for coming on. I feel like a real journalist. Uh, you reached out. We got you on the show. Um, it's been a pleasure. Uh, now, Indiegogo is where people can back Thin Blue Line, Mike. Yes, uh, just go to thinbluelinecomics.com, thinbluelinecomics.com. Okay, and, um, yeah, I strongly recommend uh, people get on charge of that. Now, again, thank you so much, Mike. It's an absolute pleasure. Good night. Thank you, Dave.